0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Nice to see everybody. Welcome. That sequence that we did for the guided meditation is now up on our blog. It's in the Buddhist traditions called the five jhanic factors, but in more simplistic terms, it's just the natural process of a mind settling. And of course, you could define it or describe that conditional, lawful movement from you know distractedness and superficiality to a mind that's more settled, balanced, clear. But one way to describe that lawful change from distractedness to non-distractedness is because distractedness is fueled by the mind being confu- having a thought, but being confused by the thought. Like when I have a thought, like "Oh, am I doing it right?" If I personalize that thought, then it has a very particular karma. Some you know, I start to struggle, or I start to spin with doubt, like "Well, what is the right way? What should I be doing?" So. To avoid all that mental proliferation, the mind needs to do one thing. This is the essential first step. It has to know what it is to disconnect. So, the mind that knows, right, this is a very natural part of the mind that awareness, that knowing, that knowing quality, instead of getting identified with the thoughts, either you could, the thought could be the object of knowing, but then the mind realizes, oh, it's just a thought. But usually we use something more simple like sensation. It's just a little less seductive than being aware, mindfully aware of a thought. So that's why we often use the sensations of the whole body sitting or the sensations of breathing in, breathing out, or hearing. These are common anchors to learn what it is for the mind, the knowing mind, to connect. It's just this sound being heard, this sensation being felt. The sight being seen, whatever it is. And that's not a thought. It's directly seeing that experience or knowing that experience of sight, of sound, of touch. Or seeing, knowing, oh, that's just a thought. Right? Like a thought is a phenomenon, not in terms of the content. I could have the thought what would a pink elephant look like? And I can be lost in that thought or the mind can simply realize the truth that, well, that's just a thought, right? So that's what we mean by contact. And the interesting thing is it's always energizing when the mind, for, you know, whatever, however that happens for you, when the mind drops its proliferation, its identification with the stream of thoughts, and enters the world of dharma, things as they are, right? The real world, in a way. And I mentioned in the guided sit, it's a little flat when we're lost in thought, even really seductive, exciting thoughts. Ultimately, when we look carefully, there's a little bit of flatness or deadness, which is why we tend to, to go from one thought to the next. We're looking for some juice. But anyway, this is just something I've been using for the guided meditations, these five things of connecting, learning to sustain, learning to be with the joy that arises, the ease, the deeper, more resonant happiness, and the peace and equanimity. And this natural process of settling removes the different obstacles or what we call hindrances from the mind. So when we get relatively good at, in any moment, to connect, then it removes sloth and torpor from the mind. So it's interesting. When you're feeling sleepy, ask your mind, well, what can the mind connect with? What is present here in the body and mind that the awareness can simply know, can drop everything and simply know this is being known. This sound is being heard. And you'll see there's a little bit of energy in that. And then the sustaining of present moment awareness removes doubt from the mind. Because doubt only arises when we're lost in our thoughts about things. Doubt is a mental construction. But when I'm just aware of bodily sensations, aware of hearing, aware of seeing thoughts are just thoughts, there's no room or space for doubt there. And it's really a shift of allegiance from looking to the meaning our thoughts construct or create for certainty or ground or meaning versus trusting the direct, immediate knowing. So this is sort of having this orientation or this refuge of dharma, things as they are, and it removes doubt. It's only when we're in our thoughts about things that we feel confused and full of doubt and look to our thoughts to explain stuff, tell us who I am, what's happening here, what's important. So the first removes sloth and torpor, the second removes doubt, really trusting the joy, the buoyancy, the sense of flow, the lightness, removes ill will from the mind. The more resonant sense of ease ah, removes restlessness. The mind doesn't have a sense of needing to go anywhere, do anything. It's willing to be calm, willing to rest. And that matures into more peace. So even the most subtle kind of craving, needing things to be other than they they are, including wanting this to last, gets removed because the peace is so peaceful, so still, so resonant. And so in Buddhism we talk about the five qualities of mind that hinder stability and it's sloth and torpor, it's doubt, it's ill will, aversion, irritation, fear, those are all qualities of ill will. Restlessness, and desiring, you know, identification with desire. And you'll see that just in the developing of the, uh, the talent of connecting, sustaining, letting joy move, trusting ease, trusting stillness, that's how the mind is purified of the hindrances. And we say in Buddhism, that mind that's in that balanced, clear, unified state, that mind is the mind that can have insight, can basically see what it hasn't seen before. So that's just a little review for those who weren't here a couple weeks ago when I covered this. Any questions about that before I go on to chapter 10 for those who are reading along in Guy Armstrong's book? So, uh, I've been uh, using, or we've been, some of us have been using Guy Armstrong's book on emptiness as a complementary text for some of the talks I've been given, giving for the last six months or so. And we're sort of right in the middle at chapter 10, very interesting chapter, at least for some of us, about the Buddhist teachings on this intersection of emptiness, which means that any moment is simply this being known and the presumption that this moment is more than that whatever that is is just something being known too that the moment is never more than just something being known so we say it's empty say a moment any moment of life any moment of experience is really simple it's just something being known from a subjective point of view any moment of your life was something being known and the, and it's empty of anything other than that something being known. That's the profound thing. So that's what we mean by emptiness. And then that teaching and how that informs what we find in the tradition around rebirth. And as you might imagine, it's kind of a provocative topic because being mortal beings, we're very interested in rebirth. (laughs) Most of us, at least, you know, right? It's, It's like... Yeah, I'm into rebirth. But you know, the interesting thing, especially in Theravada Buddhism, rebirth is not something to look forward to. I mean, it is going to be what it is in our mind, so we have to sort of work with that. But samsara, the cycles of birth and death, is propelled in sort of the doctrine, you know, the sort of Buddhist teachings, is propelled by ignorance by misunderstanding what this is. There's a very provocative line, maybe you've come on Sunday morning and uh, usually once a month, month or so we chant the Metta Sutta, the Buddha's Discourse on Loving Kindness, Sunday morning. And it's a very, in the Buddhist culture, it's a very important, popular, short text to recite. And in like places like Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka, if you were in danger, you know, and you were kind of a very traditional Buddhist, you might just start chanting to yourself the Metta Sutta, the, the Buddhist words on loving kindness. It's a very beautiful, sweet, you know, maybe half page discourse, so it's not that long. But it ends with this very provocative phrase. You know, as it's talking about someone who has a lot of integrity, doesn't harm, and radiates loving kindness in all directions, all the time, without interruption. And then the last line is or the second and last line is something like, is not born again into this world. And it's it's sort of funny from most of our points of view. It's like, well, I would want to be rewarded. If I was that good, you'd think I'd be rewarded, you know. So maybe not born again into this world, but maybe I'll get into a special world, like heaven or something. But the implication is not born again, right? That's the reward for doing your practice, not born again, and that seems a little like, oh, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> so that's the the first point to make about rebirth is um, because it's such a well. First, the dying process is associated with pain, right? not only the actual physical pain of dying, if you've been around death. I mean, not always the case, but it's often the case that it hurts, you know, as the body is shutting down. And there's often, maybe almost always, uh, the letting go of relationships. So there's the, the emotional pain and the fear, the unpleasantness of the fear of the unknown, right? So in our minds, you know, It's got some baggage, death does. The Buddha might say something like, If we want to really understand that moment of death, or what that is, we should study our life as it is now. It's like better understanding the mind and what the nature of the mind is, the nature of experience is, really informs create some deeper intuition about what that moment of death is all about. And the other thing to kind of loosen things up a bit, because the idea isn't to have, like, to replace whatever fixed idea you had of death from your childhood and the culture you were raised in and replace that with sort of a Buddhist dogma view of death. That's not the point. The point is to really have an open mind and and a lot of what we have an open mind about an acceptance around is that we don't know but just to support the loosening of the screws you know to kind of loosen up whatever fixed views you might have you know, one of the things we people often don't realize about being raised those of you who were raised in western culture is there's a, kind of an unseen mostly unseen fundamentalism that we could call materialism, that somehow whatever this life is, whoever I am, it's sort of born out of the material, the sort of solid things like earth and biology and cells and brain. And and so the mind and the sense of me is a kind of flowering of biology. And that view, that fixed view, that fundamentalist view in Materialism goes mostly unquestioned, unseen. We just presume that that's true a lot of the time, or a lot of folks, and they don't. There's not an open mind. But generally speaking, in Eastern spiritual and philosophical traditions, it's different. It's much more that what we would in the West call the material world, the lectern, the cushion, me, my mind my thoughts my emotions that all of this arises has an appearance the world the physical world is an appearance in the mind so the eastern general view right i'm just sort of staring sort of in putting things in very general terms the eastern view is that what arises arises out of the mind and the western view is what arises the mind arises out of material. And the thing is, we don't know. Do you know what is true? But we, like, in terms of having some ground, we know, we can know at least, with some reflection that we don't know. And that keeps our mind open. And then the reason why that's so helpful is it really supports then what the kind of stories the mind tells itself about death, about rebirth, about what that is, right? Because when we develop the confidence that we don't know, it doesn't exempt us from having stories about death. But see, now the stories we have about death and about rebirth can be pragmatic. It's like, well, what story is actually helpful for me living my life today about death, about dying, about rebirth, as opposed to what's right. right? And see, this is a, the Buddha. I mean, when you look at the Buddha's teachings and how he taught, he was so pragmatic. And that's really the important thing. There's a If you're reading the book, there's a section where Guy Armstrong mentions a sutta, one of the discourses I made a copy of that page here. And the name of the sutta is the inconvertible teaching. And in that, the Buddha says, is talking to some student of his, some monk or nun or lay person, and he says, he points out to them that if his teaching on karma and rebirth is true, they would be wise to act in light of it, right? It's like Well, I can. I'm almost dead. I might as well cheat, or I might as well be mean, because there's no way the negativity of that action is going to screw me in this life. I'm already screwed, you know, or whatever. Or I think I'll get away with it. But the question is, if we is it pragmatic to act as if whatever whatever action we do with intention that somehow the weight of that, the consequence of that, will land. I'll be responsible for it. Is that a helpful, skillful story to be operating with? Because it might motivate me like to be careful not to harm others, not to take what hasn't been given to me, to be careful with my words, to be careful with my sexual activity, not to cause unnecessary harm, right? But if we you know if we feel like we can get away with it, it's like yeah, no one's watching. But see in terms of karma, the impression is laid in the heart itself. like I'm in this moment, I'm the person who lied in the previous moment. So the mind in this moment is the mind that was conditioned, by that moment of lying or that moment of cheating or that moment of hurting somebody. So if we have the idea that those impressions from being unskillful, being mean, being unjust, not taking responsibility that's that are ours, if there's a if we have the story that those impressions remain there until they get worked out, then we're just so much more full of care as we live our life. And if it turns out that there isn't another life, we have the advantage of having been really careful in this life, which is a kind of blessing. And if there is another life, we'll be well served for having acted as if things matter, our actions matter, right? so in this way this teaching on rebirth is it's just useful to skillful pragmatically skillful to live as if everything we do with intention matters even if we see somebody being bad their whole life and yet they remain sort of wealthy and they die peacefully and then we can kind of go who's in charge of karma i mean <laughs> Somebody should have, what's that old word, smote that person with lightning or something like that. You know, it's like God isn't paying attention. I better start, you know, acting as the sort of person responsible for karmic retribution. I mean, we often feel that way, like we see our partner do something. It's like our responsibility to point it out because, you know, God forbid they do something not right And get away with it. And um, so this is the thing. But if we have a sense, both from observing our own mind, that it doesn't matter if we don't see our own, the consequences coming to ourselves or to somebody else from some wholesome or some unwholesome action. Because we know from observing our own mind that when I do something wholesome, just sort of a spontaneous, beautiful, organic act of generosity, then the impression of that clean, beautiful, wholesome act is there in the mind. And it immediately affects who I am in in the next moment. I'm the one who just did that, right? And on and on. It changes who we are. It's like by acting in a beautiful, skillful way, we go left. And being a jerk, we go right. And then having gone right, every other moment of who we are will be conditioned by having gone right instead of having gone left. And this is happening moment by moment by moment. So the interesting thing is we see that this moment-to-moment nature of the mind, this is what the Buddha points to in terms of better understanding the time of death. We see that one moment, we have this moment, and the way it is for me in this moment, there's really not much I can do about what's showing up, nor is there much for you to do for like what's showing up as sensation or what's showing up as a particular mood or quality of your mind right now? Because all of that is arising from past conditions, and then it shows up like this. But what my mind does with it right now, how I relate to it, like, am I distracted? Am I in denial? Am I a little controlling, trying to suppress or repress something? Am I indulging, attached, wanting something to last? But how I relate to the present moment conditions, that leaves a new impression. That's something new. What's showing up from the past? That's showing up from the past. How I relate to this moment that has shown up from the past? That's a new impression. That's that going left or right, right? And so we can see that we live moment to moment to moment. We see it now. It's just, it's kind of like um, they use the example sometimes the frames of a film, you know, back before it was digital. And it was just one picture. But when those pictures are happening pretty quick, there is the appearance of continuity when you're watching a film, right? But you slow down the film projector and you get one frame for three seconds and then another frame for three seconds. And it's that sort of staccato. And each frame that's there, right, it is conditioning the next frame that's there. So the mind, the thinking mind, sees that conditioning effect from one moment to the next and it presumes something that's not actually true. Me. Oh yeah, me. Same me. Yep, me. Me and mine, me and mine, me and mine. So there's a presumption that the appearance of continuity implies something. So part of the reason, like in the instructions for the guided meditation tonight, that we want that more refined, stable, clear mind is to more truthfully see what experience is, to see that coming and going nature. So it's not just so much that at the end of the life of the body, and the body dies, that, oh my God, I had a life and now I don't have a life. But it's actually, we misunderstand what this is. So the reason we don't know what death is is because we don't know what life is. It's like life, whether we're talking about it as one big thing or just moment by moment, is really defined by both the birth and the death. There's no way a human being has any sense of what this is, what it means to be alive or a human being or have a mind or whatever you want to call this experience we're having. There's no way to really understand it without actually knowing the experience of birth and death. And like the Burmese tradition that I practice in quite a bit when my wife is also practicing a bit uh, quite a bit, um, there's a real you know once the momentum of mindful awareness is developed, the teachers are often encouraging the mind to specifically notice, The arising moment, like what experiences bursting into existence. That's generally quite enlivening. And then to notice what experiences ceasing, falling away, disappearing. So you're just observing endings, 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 each breath, each sound. Not that, oh, this is being known, but like whatever it was that was being known is like sand through the fingers, it's disappearing. To really practice seeing directly in our moment-to-moment experience the reality of birth, or what we usually call the arising of whatever's next. And then to train the mind to observe the cessation of, of whatever just was. Because doesn't it make sense? It's like, in order for life to keep moving on, this moment of feeling pain in my knee has to cease for the next moment of feeling whatever I'm going to feel or see whatever I'm going to see or hear what I'm going to hear. Otherwise, it would be this huge traffic jam of experience, right? So experience is literally disappearing. It's ceasing. Gone forever. So the next moment can be there. And it's life-changing ch- life to begin to sense the process nature. I mean, we can intellectually get that experience is a changing process. It makes a lot of sense intellectually. But to really train the mind to see that, it, it really challenges the meaning our thoughts have created about what this is. Like that there's a permanent me because that implies something that's not fluid, something that's not changing, something that's not ephemeral. And thought can have that appearance because it's a new thought. Oh yeah, this is me. This is happening to me. I like this. But that's a brand new thought. That's not the thought we had Two seconds ago, that's when I said, Oh, yeah, this is happening to me. But because it has, because of the sort of uh, appearance of continuity, there's this superficial presumption. And then it leads to all sorts of effects like attachment and hate, greed, all of the destructive, afflictive emotions and qualities or states of mind come out of that misunderstanding. So clearly something big happens at the time of death because the body and the mind, you know, now when we just look at the experience of the body and the mind, they're very much related or tethered together. And we can see that because when my mind is a certain way, I can see some correlated experience in my body. And just like when our body a certain way, really sick or really pleasant, it affects the mind. But there, there are also two different things. They're not exactly the same. You can have a very sick or very old, a dying body, but the mind isn't dying. The activity of the mind, the clarity of the mind, And you can have a mind that's in a really bad place, dark place, heavy place, closed down place, but the body can be very healthy. So there are different trajectories. And this is just helpful about loosening the screws to kind of get the sense that the mind stream, the continuity of the mind, what's in motion. Somebody once asked a Tibetan teacher, well, what gets reborn? And the teacher said something like, well, your neurotic, unfinished business is what gets reborn. It's sort of that mind, like even the desire to want to continue to live, if that's in the mind at the time of death and with no longer being tethered to a physical body because that thing has died, ceased to keep living, so that vehicle is no longer a vehicle for the mind, then... There is that mind stream, whatever that is, right? Just kind of telling ourselves, hopefully, skillful stories. Whatever that mind stream is, it's something that wants a body, right? Like when we go to bed at night and we have unresolved fears or unresolved desires, they might show up in our dream state, right? Well, If we can do that, if the mind can do that, maybe the mind can sort of have a more resonant dream, right? Or find a womb or who knows what. But the the real point is that that lawful process is arising and ceasing in every moment. But because we're so identified with the body, right? One of the useful things about stabilizing awareness is we can actually watch the mind. When our awareness is sort of more ordinary, less trained, it's really hard to be aware of the mind. Because as soon as we notice the mind, we get lost in thought usually. But when the sense of peace and equanimity and stillness is quite strong, then the mind is sort of stabilized by that peace. It's in a sense, this this isn't a perfect analogy, but in a sense the mind is resting in that still place and from that place of stillness or silence it can watch the activity of the mind. The worries come and go, desire comes and goes, you know, just different ordinary emotions and thoughts. Arise and cease. And even the awareness itself is coming and going, but the mind realizes that uh, the thing that, you know, that we're so, um, the mind is so convinced that life refers back, but the mind really sees how ephemeral thoughts are. It's so interesting to see like, that we miss this. Like when you look back on the day, how many thoughts and different emotions you had today? Like who were we? Like which of those moments of emotion, moments of mental content, where are we in all of that flow, all of that vast diversity of mental activity? Where is the me there? So this is what I'd encourage, you know, this intersection of emptiness and rebirth, is to have a more sincere interest in and in using some of these teachings to loosen the screws. You know, so when we observe the mind, when we stabilize awareness and observe the mind, and really see the mind as a river, a river. Awareness is a river, the mental content of thoughts is a river, the flow of emotion is a river. Whatever the mind can know is seen as a river, a flow. As the Buddha said once in one of his better-known talks, does it make sense to describe something that's changing and because it's changing and unsat- uh, not satisfying, meaning I can't make ground out of it because it's changing, does it make sense to say that something that is changing and unsatisfying is self, is me? And the people there said, no. <laughs> the Buddha said, just right. It doesn't make sense if something is a flow. And therefore, unsatisfying can't be ground for the ego, can't build a self out of it. It doesn't make sense to refer to it as self. So, so much of our practice in sim- simplistic terms is to develop awareness, stability of awareness, so the mind can see this more subtle reality of the activity of the mind and body that it's a flow, no beginning. No end. There is no way to understand without understanding birth and death. It's like birth and death is the relevant experience of life. And for us, it's sort of like we don't want to think about that. We, you know, Life is sort of what isn't about birth and death but to see it really as the very essence of life, the very essence of being a being, is birth and death, is this flow, this groundlessness, this emptiness. I'll just mention one last teaching and then open it up for discussion. Um, The Buddha, in, in light of karma, you know, like what is set in motion, the impressions that have been laid down in the mind because of a moment of being skillful or a moment of being unskillful, and then the—that's a mind that's taken a right or taken a left, and so that impression is there for there from them on, then on. But so then there's a sense of dragging a lot of karma, and the Buddha said basically, yeah. It's inconceivable how much unfinished business is there, so it isn't about finishing all the business, as much as it is understanding what unfinished business is. Does that make sense? So I might have been. Well, I'll give you an example from the time of the Buddha, where there was a mass murderer on a um, uh, a Gulimala was his name, and uh, he had killed. I mean. Who knows about these stories? But anyway, he had killed 99 pe- 999 people or something like that. He had, for some convoluted story, had made this resolve to kill a 1,000 people. And, uh, and he was ready to be done. And he vowed, he I'm going to kill the next person I see. It just so happened to be his mother. And the Buddha sensed this. And anyway, luckily was able to get a Gulimala to ordain as a monk. He became a practitioner, right? So he had a lot of negative karma, Right, having killed 999 people, and uh, but the the way the simile works is, and you might have heard me say this before. It's like the the difference between somebody without understanding. They might have a lot of karma, and then if something happens, if a trigger is there, then that karma will ripen, like for anger to arise. And it's as if you take a cup of salt and you pour it into one pint of water. That water is going to be really salty. So for somebody without a lot of understanding, when a particular karmic seed ripens, like the, uh, the disposition to be angry or the disposition to be greedy, then the action is going to be huge in that person's life in that moment. But if you took a cup of salt and you added it to Lake Superior, the ripening of that particular karmic seed would be virtually indistinct, right? It wouldn't have a, be a big deal for that person. Same karmic seed coming to fruition, showing up in that person's mind. But one person's mind is vast like Lake Superior, and another person's mind is quite narrow. So if an impulse to be greedy arises and my mind is really narrow, I might do something really stupid that has some consequences. But if an impulse to be greedy arises but my mind has a lot of space, a lot of wisdom, a space of love, that's just greed. It's just a little movement of greed. doesn't rock the mind, doesn't throw the mind off balance in that way. And this is even true in terms of understanding death or loss or change, any change, losing a job, falling in love, finding out we have cancer, or whatever it might be. What kind of mind... So if we presume that there's a lot of unfinished business, and it's not only our karmic business, there's the karma of our country. Right, that we're all responsible for. Doesn't matter who you voted for, right? And the karma of being a human being on this planet. And who knows what other sort of natural things come and go that have nothing to do with anybody's action, but have to do with other conditional lawful unfoldings. You know, not every tidal wave or whatever is the result of somebody having done something bad, <laughs> right? Sometimes there are tidal waves because of just natural causes and conditions. So we don't presume, we don't personify everything that happens. You might look at me in a certain way because you have indigestion, not because I was mean to you earlier. So we're having all of these things arise, but we can meet them with this vast space of wisdom and love. That's how we deal with rebirth, the, the knowing that we don't know, that's how we deal with whatever shows up in our lives, good or bad. So I'll leave it here, presuming that other people have some wisdom to share from your own practice, life experience, but also questions that you might have on this topic. Who'd like to begin? Yeah, please, you want to pass the second row of chairs. Hi, my name is Bronwyn.
0: Um I've come a lot to these sessions because I'm a social worker, and I work with a lot of folks that I think should be here, but just because of where they are in in life, they don't necessarily know this is a way to to help themselves. So I guess I wanted to kind of go back a little bit on what you were saying earlier, how we might see others making choices of going the left or the right. And it's what I find challenging a lot is... Knowing how or when is the best way to step in, to say, well, the first say that I'm seeing that, and then to gently suggest, with without saying it's not you, <laughs> it's your actions or it's your thoughts or it's your ways of how you're you're you know dealing with this. And I love your analogy of the salt with the cup in the ocean because. I think you mentioned this a couple of weeks ago and and that has stayed with me, and so I see a lot of cups just walking around where I work, and I want to try to make their cups bowls and eventually you know platters and then get to maybe a pond.
1: yeah, so the the interesting question for anybody in that service world or fighting for justice or any of these sort of more messy processes or raising children or deciding to live with another human being, (laughs) or even having a cat for that matter. (laughs) These intense challenges we have. It's like having that ocean as we see it. What is it like to see human beings suffering and doing things because of their suffering that lead to more suffering, right? What is the skillful way to relate to that? So being that vast ocean actually is what allows us to be close because we're not afraid of their suffering. So we can actually be intimate with it. And because we're intimate, we can see clearly. And because we see clearly, we'll know better what to say, what not to say, when to move, when to refrain from moving, right? Because it's a real art. but a lot of people who are helping their cat or helping their partner or helping others, we're whether we see it clearly or not, we're afraid of their suffering. In some way, just to be provocative provocative, I'll say it this way, their suffering bothers us. We don't want them to suffer. But see that keeps us from really being close. It makes us impatient with their suffering. it makes us, act in ways that doesn't really help. So first, we need to learn to show up as a social worker or whatever as a big ocean of wisdom and love, empty. We have to be empty in order to be close or intimate, in order to really... When we're empty, when we're vast, we're willing to feel what it feels like to see what we see. We're not afraid of hopelessness. We're not afraid of anything. That I mean, in the ultimate sense, when there's a lot of wisdom and love, that mind isn't afraid to show up anywhere. That's how you know you're fully enlightened. You can show up anywhere and be okay. The most beautiful experience in the world and you would, the mind wouldn't be confused by it. The most horrible, terrible place, experience in the world, and the mind wouldn't be confused by it, wouldn't be tied around it. So instead of trying to figure out what to say to people, this is the cool thing about the practice and really I think goes back to what I was saying before about pragmatism. The Buddha doesn't hand us a cookie cutter like how to do life. It's more about how to show up and we find that the skillful response comes out of the integrity of how we show up. Can we show up with more space? Less of a narrow self-centered concern and more of that humility of knowing that I don't know, but I do know how to show up. I, knew how, I do know how to be intimate and maybe what I end up saying or doing, because I'm not afraid to be intimate, might be a little bit more skillful than it would have been had I desperately tried to figure out what to do or say in that moment. Yeah. Thanks for sharing with us. We'd like to speak next. What have you been learning? What relates to what I've been talking about tonight or questions that come to mind about rebirth? Karma we talked about last week. Yeah, please. Paige, you want to pass the mic all the way over to Paige?
2: Um, This just came up in response to the last comment. Um, I guess I'm thinking a lot about boundaries and intimacy. And, you know, if, you know, I got to the point where I was a pond or an ocean, you know, I could show up and be intimate with anything and connect. But can you say something about the wisdom of boundaries or knowing, you know, you, you could show up and connect and be non-reactive, but just how to create create a, a space where you have boundaries.
1: Yeah. And it might be a more general, useful to take this in a more general way, like how, how does that uh, active or that... Um, choice about caring for ourselves versus caring for another. How does that happen? Because part of being open and uh, loving and seeing the conditional nature internally, externally, so the mind, the wisdom in the mind is sort of understanding in terms of this very immense, complex, Unfolding of causes and conditions, internal, external, all around, right? And then the question is, what should I do? Who should I take care of? How do I take care of myself? Or am I being greedy and I should really take care of them? But like I was suggesting earlier, how do we figure that out on that level? You can't. But what the mind can do is notice how it is responding. So let's say you're responding by holding back, but see that's not all that's happening. So there's holding back, and there's wisdom that knows that holding back is happening. And if that holding back is truly unskillful, then the wisdom is noticing that that it's unskillful, that somebody is being is co- being caused harm by that holding back, right? So. What we're doing is we're emphasizing the connecting and sustaining and the opening and the releasing into the flow of the present moment, that intimacy. We're really emphasizing that because it creates a feedback loop. So instead of Paige trying to be skillful, really taking care of herself, really being respectful of boundaries, which is how we would talk about it in a therapeutic or conventional sense, and that's appropriate to learn those sort of conventional skills at having clear boundaries. So, this is in no way diminishing this sort of basic psychological training about, you know, pages already done training as a chaplain, but, or is in the middle of getting trained as a chaplain. So, that will be an important, obviously, a very important skill to have in chaplaincy work to know how to, yeah, be with people's pain without taking it personally. But the way we often learn best is noticing when we're being skillful that it's skillful and noticing when we're being unskillful that it's being unskillful and to notice it in real time. So we don't have to like be unskillful for weeks at a time and then realize we're dead to the world because we weren't paying attention to boundaries. But if we're really all of the <coughs> Value, the emphasis, the refuges in this feedback system of being aware, being mindfully aware, then how would it be that the mind wouldn't notice that something is off balance? Right? What would be in the way of the mind recognizing that one's not being taken care of or the other, I'm neglecting the other and being too afraid? In the deepest sense, that boundary issue, um, it's like the more the mind understands what the self is, the easier it is to handle that boundary issue. It's like when we're around real suffering, kind of going back to your question, and a lot of people who in the room are body workers or other kinds of healers, you learn this one way or another. or therapist, maybe you're not conscious of having learned it, but one way or another you have to learn it if you're going to stay in those worlds, those healing worlds. You have to let things go right through because you're not really a good healer or therapist if you you stay in your bubble and you try to deal with them in their bubble. But it also won't work if you're taking their stuff into your bubble. right? So there's something about opening, like part of being Lake Superior is, it's like you're not afraid of letting the salt in because there's enough space. It, it sort of just keeps going. It doesn't really land. It's, it's Why that word emptiness is, I mean it's not perfect as a word, but it it's like where is the pain, someone else's pain or the messiness or the disgust, where is it going to land? We're not holding on to it, we're just being undefended. We're letting it in, but that doesn't mean we're holding it. right? We're just not afraid for whatever it is that we're seeing. We're not afraid to let that experience be what it is or the story that we're hear- hearing. You know how when we see something on, in a film or in the news that's horrible, we sort of flinch as if I need a barrier here. But when it's not too intense, really practice being completely open, even to the to the degree where you feel you might be flattened by what you, but, but just let it keep going. Really have that sense that it, it can come in because there's no part of the mind or body or anything that is owning it or holding it. We're just practicing feeling what we feel but no trace. But you have to develop that skill. It's like a a wisdom skill, especially in the direction you're going with your professional life.
2: I'm thinking more about my family than my job. It's Mm. actually pretty easy. I feel so much easier in my job than it is with my family. Well, we have a (laughs) lot
1: of entanglement with these close people, right? Like parents and siblings and children. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, often what we see, what we get caught up is that there's something in ourselves that we haven't really fully seen. So that's, you know, that's it's sort of a different point, but when it's like that, then we can ask ourselves, honey, what is it that I'm not seeing? What's here that I haven't really felt or seen or invited in? What's asking to be seen here? And is it okay to feel what I'm feeling as I begin to see it? Is it okay to let this feeling be as big as it needs to be or as subtle as it needs to be or as unpleasant as it's going to be? Is it okay to let everything move? Yeah, thanks, Paige. Let's just take a few moments and let go of the words. Just for a few seconds, appreciating the silence. Letting the evening, this particular session, die, cease. Thanks, everyone. Nice to be here today.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.
1: Thank you for listening.